0: I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me and thank you Dr. Nykirk and I apologize for the deep embarrassment I caused by changing my title yesterday and yes uh, it's true I am going to stick to my title which I uh, which was publicized uh, for today which is what is law and uh, back home in Kansas one of the things that I enjoy most about my job is I get to travel around the whole state and I speak to lots and lots of different groups but I oftentimes speak in schools Um, and that's one of my favorite things to do and I sort of conceived of this morning's talk as opposed to last night as kind of similar to that so I'm pleased as I look out and I see what I presume at least are mostly students. I assume most of you are Geneva students but it's great to have some high school students here. I guess we have, is it Beaver County Christian School students? Where are you? Just so I can know where, okay great. Um, and I heard there may be some uh, homeschool co-ops or groups here. Is that true? Any, Maybe not true. Oh, over here. Excellent. Um, any other schools? Am I missing anybody else? Okay, good. Well, um, my hope is that this morning I can talk to you on a, on a much more sort of uh, nuts and bolts level about this subject, which can kind of get grandiose, right? It can be big, abstract, um, and complicated ideas, uh, but I want to break it down and kind of pull it apart uh, and talk to you about it in that way, and I hope that it's a little bit less formal than last night. So uh, if you have questions, I hope you do. Um, save those up and hopefully we'll have a little bit of time at the end uh, to kind of have a discussion if, uh, if the talk has triggered any thoughts or questions in your mind. Um, so what is law? Um, On one level, that might seem like an easy question, right? Law is anything, any rule that you have to obey, right? In some sense, that's what law is. But the the answer to the question starts to get a lot more complicated as you ask follow-up questions. For example, just an easy question, but to illustrate the point, uh, what's the difference between your obedience... In two situations. One, you leave here and drive home and don't go over the speed limit. You're submitting to something. Or two, you leave here and you get mugged and turn over your wallet. Well, you're submitting to something in that case too. You've obeyed two different authorities over your life. And is there any difference between the two? Well, clearly there is a difference between the two, right? One is legitimate and one's illegitimate. Um, If you resist one, you're fined, you're a criminal. If you resist the other, you're a hero, right? Well, why is that? I think we could all come up with a pretty straightforward answer in that situation that I gave. Um, But it might not be as easy as you think to articulate why exactly is obedience in one situation required and disobedience punished, And in another situation, obedience is a violation of your rights. And resistance might actually be celebrated. Those things go to the heart of this question is, what is law? Law is not just a command that you have to obey. It's a legitimate command. There's something that makes it legitimately authoritative. Um, Just like that speed limit sign versus the mugger. One is legitimate, one is illegitimate. Um, So there's lots of ways to approach this question, and I don't want to really get distracted by what are some really important and interesting philosophical questions about where law comes from and so on. These are great questions. Um, You know, there's lots of interesting schools of thought. There's lots of debate. Are we talking about natural law? Are we talking about a higher law of some kind? Maybe we're talking about the moral law or perhaps even some kind of a religious law. Um, For our purposes this morning, I really want to pass those questions over and talk about the law in our societal context as positive law. And positive law is the name that we generally give to our kind of law. Well, what is positive law? Quite simply, that is whatever rules are produced by the acceptable procedural mechanisms that society has agreed to. So whatever comes out of that accepted process is law. That's positive law. Um, I I don't know if the old Schoolhouse Rock um, videos are still around. Some of us remember them. Uh, But maybe you remember the old one about how a bill becomes a law, right? Well, that is positive law. Um, if something is passed by a majority of Congress, which requires approval by both sides, by both chambers, the House and the Senate, and then is sent to the president, and the president signs it, it's law. That's positive law. Um, And so that, in one sense, is why the speed limit sign is legitimate and the mugger is not legitimate. One passed through the process to become positive law. But even that doesn't really tell you a lot about the character of the law, or really how it works, and importantly, what values does it reflect? And so that's where I wanna go with the talk this morning. I wanna break this thing called positive law down into its constituent parts. Um, I want you to sort of imagine that uh, I'm a mechanic, and you really want to know how your lawnmower works. So I say, well, I'm a mechanic. I know about this. I'll show you how your lawnmower works. And I start to take it apart. And I say, well, this piece does this. This piece does this. This is how they fit together. This is why it's designed this way. This is why it cuts your grass. Um, So you can imagine me kind of like the lawnmower mechanic. That's my goal, at least, is to break down this thing we call the rule of law and break it down to its pieces and just show you from the perspective of a judge who deals with this all the time, how does this work? What is this thing we call a lawnmower? And you hear that term a lot, not lawnmower, but rule of law, right? You hear it all the time if you pay attention to our political debates. Everyone in our political system genuflects, rightly so, to this notion of we live under the rule of law. But if you penetrate behind that phrase, you quickly realize that People may have different ideas about what that means, or maybe people don't know what that means. Um, So let's try to figure that out. So I want to talk about five uh, basic characteristics of this lawnmower, to use my metaphor, this positive law. So five characteristics. First, it is adversarial. Okay, It's adversarial. That means, very simple, Think about a Geneva football game or whatever, some athletic contest. Uh, It's adversarial, and an adversarial encounter has some clear uh, qualities to it. You have two contestants, two combatants. They each want the same thing, and they can't both have it. Okay? Geneva wants to win the football game. Westminster wants to win the football game. Uh, what's been the recent record in that, uh, you know, conflict? I don't even know. Uh, can they both win? No, they can't both win. How do they, uh, how do they decide? Well, they have to meet on uh, what we would call a neutral field. They have to meet somewhere where the playing field is level and there are neutral arbiters, the referees, who will oversee uh, the contest. So that's an adversarial process. So so an adversarial process sort of gives gives rise to a whole series of things that we call procedural rights. So you've probably heard the phrase, due process of law. Well, due process of law, that's not a magic phrase. Generally, it just means what is required to ensure that this adversarial process works. And the analogy to a sporting event is actually really instructive. Um, so think about it. You have a right, to be her- a right to be heard. You can't have an adversarial process without the right to be heard. You can't have a football game unless you let, the one, you know, you got, you got to let the defense on the field. It's not a football game if the offense just gets to run their play with no defense. The defense has a right to be heard. Uh, there has to be notice. Right? you got to tell both sides where to be, uh, or you can't have a game. There's a right to be present. Well, this is obvious in the context of a football game. It's actually not so obvious, necessarily, in the context of the law. Many legal systems don't give a party the right to be present. They just get tried in absentia. Well, that really undermines the adversarial nature of the rule of law. Um, Not only do the parties have a right to be present, they have a right for this contest to take place in public. So you might feel like there was some illegitimacy if you woke up one morning and were told, oh, Geneva and Westminster played their football game at midnight last night with the the, the doors of the stadium locked, and nobody saw it. But trust us, this is what happened. We don't do that. That's not part of our system of law. Our system of law says the adversarial process requires that this happen in public. You can, no secret trials. That's basically what that means. Um, the right to be heard comes with a right to a lawyer. So not only do you have a right to be heard, you have a right to be represented um, you have a right to what we call in the law a detached magistrate. So a detached magistrate means a fair judge who doesn't have a stake in the outcome. Um, that's basically, uh, your referees who haven't placed a wager on the outcome of the game. Well, why would that be so unfair? It should be pretty obvious. If the referee has a personal stake, he or she may not call the game fairly. Um, And then finally, in our adversarial system, you have a right to an appeal. And one of my favorite things about some of the new changes in the National Football League um, was this idea of video review. And actually, how many of you watch NFL or college football or that kind of thing? You're pretty familiar with what I'm talking about, right? There's a controversial play. The referees make a call on the field, uh, but one side is unhappy with the call, so they say, you know, red flag, video review. Send it to New York, right? And then the commentators start talking about it for two minutes. Well, that may not be so, I don't know, there's differing opinions on, to, on whether that's good for the game or not, but it's great for my legal talks um, because it provides a wonderful example of what is an appeal right? And why do we have appeals? Uh, Well, for the exact same reason, we have video review in football. The referees, even if they're detached magistrates, can get it wrong. And sometimes we want to have a higher power, a higher court, take a look at what they did and deliberate about it. You know, it's not in the rough and tumble of the game. It's not an immediate decision. We get to sort of take a slow look, and we get to replay it over and over, and look at it from different angles, and say, yeah, we think they got it right, or no, they got it wrong. Call is overturned, right? So that is uh, the right to an appeal. So all of those things are part of due process of law. And they all adhere, and this is important, in this notion that the law is adversarial. One other characteristic of an adversarial process that I think is interesting and instructive is this. The law doesn't really exist, at least in one sense, without a dispute. Now, that's not entirely true. Obviously, the law continues to exist. But we're all standing, sitting here, I'm standing here in this room. We're more or less at peace with each other, right? I don't see any spitballs flying. I, rotten tomatoes haven't, been, you know, or aren't headed up here to the stage yet. Uh, Where is the law in this room? Well, in one sense it's here, right? But in another sense, we're all at peace with each other. We don't need the law. There's no dispute. We don't need any of this. We're quite happy living without the law. So no dispute, no law. No adversarial system or no adversarial action, no law. And this is actually a very important principle that is in our United States Constitution. And it's this idea that courts only exist to resolve what we call cases and controversies, or real disputes. Uh, Oftentimes, parties will come to a court and say, we really need to know the answer to this question. It's very important to us. And the court will say, well, what's your dispute? What are you arguing about? And they will say, oh, we're not arguing about anything. We get along just fine. We just want to know what you think about this. And the court will say, no. You are not fighting. We are not deciding. That's called the principle of a case or controversy. And without a case or controversy, courts literally have no jurisdiction. There is no power to pronounce the law without a dispute. And this plays itself out in lots of different ways. For example, let's say um, that two parties to a contract are talking and one party says to the other, you know, next year I might, for whatever reason, have to break this contract. And the other party to the contract says, oh, how dare you? I'm gonna, I'll see you in court, right? And they file a lawsuit. Well, a court will look at that and say, that's not right. That's the word the courts would use. You don't actually have a dispute yet. We don't have a power to, the power to resolve this because you're not actually fighting with each other yet. You're just anticipating. That's not right. The opposite problem can happen. Let's say a person has been imprisoned, has been convicted of a crime and imprisoned. They've served their complete sentence. They're done with it. Years down the road, they decide to themselves, for whatever reason, maybe good reason, maybe bad reason, that just wasn't fair. I, I got railroaded. I'm going to appeal my conviction. And the person goes to court and says, that was wrong, I should never have been convicted and imprisoned. And the court will say, sorry, your issue is moot. That's the word we would use. It's moot. In other words you're not actually fighting about anything. It's too late. There's nothing we can do. Even if you're right, there's nothing we can do. So courts require an active dispute. No dispute, no law. The second characteristic of uh, the rule of law that I want to talk about is the division of power. And I know I visited Dr. Nyker's class, and I'm sure many of you when you're in your government classes and so on, learn early that one of the chief uh, principles of our constitutional system is something we call the separation of powers. And I'm sure you could all articulate why that is. Um, And it's a pretty simple explanation. Those people who put together our system of law over the course of centuries learned that it's not such a good idea to put all power in one basket. Whenever one person or one institution exercises all the power, things tend to go badly. So what we ought to do is we ought to spread that power out. That way, at least, if something's going badly over here, we have recourse over here. We have a balance and a separation of powers. And oftentimes we think about that in terms of our branches of government, right? Back to Schoolhouse Rock. Executive, legislative, judicial, and that's certainly true. We've also talked a little bit last night, and we talked in Dr. Nykirk's class a little bit about federalism, about the division of power vertically between uh, localities and nationalities. There's also divisions of power within the branches of government. So in Congress, for example, there's a House and a Senate. In courts, there is likewise a divided power, and that's the second characteristic of the rule of law. So there's a vertical division, right? In Kansas, I'm not sure how it is in Pennsylvania, it's probably the same, it is in most places. In Kansas, there's three levels of courts. So you have your trial courts where you take your lawsuit or you prosecute a crime or you defend against a prosecution. Uh, That's like the playing field, right? That's the football field. Then there's what we call an intermediate appellate level, um, and this is this is the video review, right? This is where you say, that court got it wrong, I want an, I want an appeal, and you go to an appellate court. Um, and then there's a third level um, in most jurisdictions, Kansas included, which is the Supreme Court. Um, so the football example breaks down a little bit because there aren't three levels, there's only two, but a Supreme Court's function is the court of last resort. Um, Not all cases will make their way up to the Supreme Court. Everyone has a right of appeal, but their right of appeal generally stops at that intermediate level. So you get one bite at the apple automatically, if you want it, but you don't get two. Uh, That's just a practical reality. The bottom line is, just for example, our court of appeals in Kansas Here's roughly 10,000 cases a year. Our Supreme Court, on the other hand, the court I sit on, we decide roughly 180 cases a year. So a big difference. Um, And there's lots of reasons for that. One of the big reasons is we take a lot more time on our cases, and they generally have what we call statewide interests. That is, they really matter for the whole state, not just for the litigants that are arguing. Um, So that's a vertical division of power, but oftentimes what goes unremarked is there's a horizontal division of power within our rule of law. Um, Here's where I thought I'd ask for audience participation. This is a hard question, but I wondered if anybody could get it. What is the horizontal division of power in a trial? What's the check on the referees? Anyone know? Anyone want to guess? Absolutely, exactly. I thought somebody would get this. Okay. We have a jury system, right? And a jury is ordinary people, so-called, you know, a jury of your peers. Citizens get to come in and participate. That's a pretty remarkable thing, if you stop and think about it. And there's lots and lots of reasons to have it, but one of the reasons, one of the most important reasons, is it's a separation of power. The power to decide a dispute is divided between the judge and the jury. And that division of power is sometimes very, very complicated, and I'm going to try to make it very simple for you. And it's this. The judge gets to say what the law is, and the jury gets to say what the facts are. That's really important. That's part of our rule of law. Third principle, or characteristic of the rule of law, is what I call uh, constrained deciders. Constrained deciders. Uh, So when you go into court, you have a dispute. It's not like you're going in front of a king who gets to decide the case however he or she wants. Uh, it's not even like you're going in front of Solomon, let's say, who with all of his wisdom might render a really just and true decision. But Solomon was pretty unconstrained. That's not true of our deciders. So myself as a judge and juries, etc., all the deciders are constrained. So how are they constrained? Well, I just let me talk about a couple different ways. Um, first, something we call presumptions. So in the law, we have presumptions. And presumptions are where the deciders are required to start. What's our most famous presumption? I'm sure somebody can say this, right? Presumption of innocence, right. So that means that from the get-go, a person who's charged with a crime starts out in the category that we call innocent. Um, that's pretty important. That's a constraint on the decider. Um, another kind of constraint is what we call burdens of proof. Okay? There are various different kinds of burdens of proof, which place various different uh, strengths of constraints on the deciders. So a burden of proof that you're probably familiar with is what uh, occurs in the criminal context, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a very high burden of proof that the state has to carry before they can convict a person, before they can move them from that innocent box to the guilty box. There are other burdens of proof that are much easier to get over. If you think of them as hurdles, beyond a reasonable doubt is a high hurdle, and then there's much lower hurdles. Um, but all of those hurdles impose a constraint on the decider. Okay, You can't just arbitrarily say, I pick A, rather than B, just because. Uh, the last constraint, or big constraint on deciders, is what we call levels of deference. And this has to do with your vertical division of power. Okay, So in the appeals process, higher courts generally defer to lower, lower courts. This is similar to a presumption uh, in that you could say it's effectively a presumption that the lower court got it right. Now think back to our NFL football games, I hope enough of you have watched these, that you've picked up on this notion of uh, deference. Sometimes we call this a standard of review. Uh, And it exists in NFL video replay because they will say, the announcers, they'll probably repeat it every time there's a video. Now remember, Remember, audience, there has to be... Does anyone know the phrase they use? What's that? Yeah. There has to be incontrovertible proof. Right? If there isn't, the call on the field stands. In fact, when the referees announce the decision from New York City or wherever the video replay is, they announce it two different ways, right? I don't know if any of you picked up on this, but when you watch NFL pick up on this from now on. They will either say, the call on the field is confirmed, or they will say, the call on the field stands. And there's, that's not just an accident. This is part of the rule of law, believe it or not. If the call on the field is confirmed, it means that the video replay guy said, yep, the evidence is there that supports what that referee did. Confirmed. If they say call on the field stands, that means something different. What that means is there wasn't enough evidence to overturn the call. We're not sure if it was right or wrong, but because we're not sure, our deference kicks in. We defer to the official on the field. Appellate courts do this all the time. It's a very important feature of the rule of law because appellate courts say, well, you were there, I wasn't. So if it's a tie, tiebreaker goes to you, basically. Uh, The fourth characteristic, I'm going to go through these pretty quickly here because I'm running short on time. Fourth characteristic is substantive rules, okay? So there's procedure. We talked a lot about due process and there's substance. So the substantive rules, the substantive uh, law is just the rules that govern any particular dispute, right? There's lots of different sources of these. The Constitution, statutes, right? What the legislature has passed. This is most often what we think of when we think of the law. And then there's something called common law. And common law is a very deep tradition of what, frankly, um, and simply put, is judge-made law. Judge-made law. And within these substantive rules, there's this whole continuum. And it starts out on the one side with what we, I would say are guidelines. So guidelines is all the way over here on the continuum. Guidelines, do you have to obey guidelines? I don't know, do you? Eh, yeah, faculty over here, they know the difference between a rule and a guideline. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know, it's pretty weak. And then you follow the continuum all the way this way. Somewhere in the middle, you get something we call standards. And all the way over here, we get rules. And we know we have to obey rules. We're less sure about these other things. Now, um, one of my favorite movies, and it became my favorite movie because my kids loved it when it came out, was The Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know, has anybody seen that movie? Well, there's this great scene in the movie that I actually got, had the opportunity of quoting in one of my judicial opinions, in which the bad guy, the right, the pirate Barbosa, has uh, the the heroine of the movie has come to entreat the bad guy to try to get something from him. I, I'm not even sure what it is. Maybe the return of her father. Is that right? Um, anyway, she's on the pirate ship. She's entreating Captain Barbosa. Um, And she has complied, she thinks she's complied, with something called the Pirate Code. Right? And in her mind, the Pirate Code means that because she has come to the boat under these certain circumstances, she is guaranteed safe passage home, regardless of the outcome. That's the Pirate Code. This is the rule of law at work. And she entreats, and her entreaty is denied. And she's like, okay, fine, I'm leaving. And Barbosa says, oh no, you're not leaving. I'm keeping you here. And she says, well, she appeals to the law, right? She says, what about the pirate's code? And here's the great line Barbosa says, well, the pirate's code is really more guidelines than rules. <laughs> and that illustrates uh, pretty simply a really important aspect of the rule of law, the spectrum that I'm talking about. You've got to know what you're talking about. Is it a rule? Is it a guideline? Or, importantly, and guidelines, frankly, don't play, play that important of a role, but what we call standards do play a very important role. Um, real quick example of that. Um, in the realm of tort law, tort law is more or less... There's a car accident and somebody gets hurt, who has to pay for it? Well, we say, which party was at fault, right? Which party was negligent? That's the party that has to pay for it. This is the realm of what we call tort law. Um, And we could have a substantive rule in torts that says, oh, I don't know, let's say it shall be a violation of the law to transport hazardous material on a county road and anyone who who transports hazardous material on a county road shall be liable for any damages caused uh, therefrom. That's a rule. It's pretty clear, it expresses it says here's the, the conduct that is prohibited and here's the results. Usually our tort law and a vast swath of our common law doesn't work by rules. It works by standards. And in tort law, we have a very tried-and-true standard for judging that person who is transporting hazardous material. And it's pretty simple, and in its simplicity, it's somewhat vague. And that's what standards are. It is that you, as a citizen, and this applies to all of you, whether or not you knew it or not, you owe what we call a duty of reasonable care to your fellow citizens. That's the standard. It's not a rule. It can't be a rule because we don't really know what that means. I mean, we know what it means, but we can't clearly define it in any particular fact situation. It's not like it's illegal to transport hazardous material. The question is, well, did you exercise your duty of reasonable care? Uh, Who gets to decide that question in a trial? Think back to our separation of power. Anyone want to guess? Easy question. It's the jury. Exactly. Juries get to decide questions of standards. Now, if the question was hazardous material, let's say the facts are undisputed, like who gets to decide that? That's a question of what we uh, what, what we would say is a question of law. So generally the judge would decide that, assuming there aren't, you know, there isn't sort of a he said she said about what happened. Um, so that's just an illustration of the different ways that substantive rules can work. Uh, and the last, the last uh, um, characterization of this thing, this lawnmower, right, this rule of law that I want to talk about, is interpretive communities. So the rule of law is exists within an interpretive community. In fact, more than one interpretive communities. Courts, interpret the law over time. The public as a whole is an interpretive community. Uh, Think about our reasonable person standard or the duty of reasonable care. Uh, That can change, and it does change over time, right? Because what society thinks is reasonable changes. That's an interpretive community at work. There's a really simple example of this. You know that white sign that has the the number 55 on it? that you see when you drive down the road? You know what I'm talking about, right? That is an authoritative text. That is a law. That is something that purports to constrain your behavior. It commands your obedience. Now, what does that sign really mean? There's an interpretive community at work. If you get a ticket for driving 56 miles per hour, what are you going to think? Really, what are you going to think? You're going to think, no way, that is wrong. And why do you think that? Well, it seems odd, doesn't it? Well, 56 is more than 55. Like, why are you upset? Well, the reason you're upset is because you know that the interpretive community has basically added an invisible plus 5. So whenever you see that sign, 55, it's like, you know... I don't know, it's like in your iPhone, they now have, you know, augmented reality. So you see the augmented reality plus five just floating beside the sign. And you know, okay, I get to drive 60. And I'm still good if I drive 60. Now, every one of us thinks that, or almost every one of us, I guarantee you. That's an interpretive society. It happens all the time. Um, Okay, I'm going to skip some things here, but those are the five characteristics of this lawnmower, of our rule of law, I hope I've taken it apart, showed you some of the pieces, showed you how they fit together. And in the last, I only got a couple minutes left, and I wanted to get to these really, this is really the payoff here. This is the important part of my talk. And that is, now that we've seen how the lawnmower works, what does that tell us about what we as a society value? Because it's really interesting, it tells us a lot. And you can probably think of some answers, but I just jotted a few of them down. It tells us that our society values the dignity and worth of every person. Right? The right to be heard, the right to notice, the right to be represented. No one gets to have their dispute resolved without having a chance to say something. Equality before the law. That's another value. Equality before the law. Um, Why is it that everyone gets a lawyer? Because we want these parties in the dispute to be situated as roughly equal as we possibly can. It's not a fair fight, otherwise. Equality before the law. This these characteristics show us that we value accountability, right? Accountability. No secret trials. There are checks and balances. You can be appealed and reversed. And accountability, of course, itself reveals another value, judgment, about, that our society has made, and that is the fallibility of power, right? We distrust power. And all of human history has been a very rough school in teaching us to distrust power. We value checks and balances that will constrain the exercise of power. A couple other things. We value innocence above security, right? Why do we have such a high hurdle for convicting a person? Why do we have a a presumption of innocence? It doesn't have to be that way. Like, we could just say, well, there's no presumption at all. You just start out on even ground, and whoever, whoever has the better argument wins. We don't say that. Why? Because we value innocence above security. It's an important, uh, an important characteristic of the rule of law. Uh, we balance justice uh, against finality. And in this case, um, it's not a preference, it's a balance. On the one hand, justice is important, so we are willing to delay finality. Like, why do we allow all these appeals? Like, shouldn't we just decide and be done with it? Well, no. Justice is too important for that. But on the other hand, why is it that the Kansas Supreme Court gets to decide once and for all for the state of Kansas? Maybe it's wrong. Well, that's true. Maybe it is wrong. But there's a value in finality. Um, one value and here's where I'm going to finish one value is not reflected in the rule of law and that's the value, final value that I want to leave you with um, and it's the value of what an old judge called, named Fletcher Moulton called obedience to the unenforceable and Fletcher Moulton talked about these two great realms of human action one is the law Right? That's everything that resolves your disputes. And the other is freedom. And he talked about the tendency of these two great realms to take over all of life. Right, Either it's illegal and I'll see you in court, or I can do whatever I want. You should recognize that. That is the tendency of a society with these two great realms that expand to fill the whole realm of action. Well, Moulton importantly said, there's one value that we need to keep an eye on that's very, very important, and it's what he called the obedience to the unenforceable. And that is, effectively, when you are not under the constraint of law, but you do what you ought to do anyway. You are submitting to what he called obedience to something that is unenforceable. He called it the domain of manners. Um, so let me read to you a paragraph. I'm afraid I probably didn't leave much time for questions. I'm going to conclude at the, at the end of this paragraph, and maybe we have a, a, a few minutes. Here's what he said. The dangers that threaten the maintenance of this domain of manners arise from its situation between the re- region of absolute choice and the region of positive law. There are countless supporters of the movements to enlarge the sphere of positive law. In many countries, there is a tendency to make laws to regulate everything. On the other hand, there's a growing tendency to treat matters that are not regulated by the positive law as matters of absolute choice. Both of these movements are encroachments on this middle land, and to my mind, the real greatness of a nation its true civilization is measured by the extent of this middle land, this obedience to the unenforceable. It measures the extent to which a nation trusts its citizens, and its existence and area testify to the way citizens, that's you, respond to that trust. Mere obedience to the law does not measure your greatness. It can easily be obtained by a strong executive or by a timorous people. But neither is the license of behavior, which so often accompanies the absence of law and is miscalled liberty, neither is that a proof of your greatness. The true test is the extent to which our citizens can be trusted to obey self-imposed law. So that's what I want to leave you to think about, um, is not only what does this lawnmower, as I've been calling it, the rule of law, look like on the inside, what does it tell us about ourselves, but importantly, how should I act when I'm not under the command of the law? It's an important question. Um, Thank you. It's been great being here. I think we have time for a couple questions. Uh, is there anyone who has a question? Um you men- you mentioned earlier about how there has to be like a case or Right. It gave that example of how a guy was put in prison, and then after he served his sentence, he then decided, well, that was unfair. Right. I want to go back, but the court said you can't. Now, if that guy um, went back and like argued for some kind of compensation, uh, for, would there then be a case there for that to be enforced? Yeah. So, uh, great question. Which is, let's say the criminal case is moot. Does this person who still believes he has a dispute? is there any recourse? And the answer, I mean, it's a complicated answer. Uh, the short version is it, it might depend on which state he lives in. <laughs> um, some places there is recourse, and there's a whole series of rules. And they're part of the common law, they're judge-made rules, that tell a person when he or she may or may not have a right to be compensated. So I, can't, it, I could give you a longer answer, but I won't. Is there one more question? All right, well please join me in thanking Justice. Thank you all so much. We are we're grateful for your presence with us last night and today. Thank Thank you. Thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure. Back to Geneva. Great Uh, to see everybody. Thank you. If you don't have class at eleven fifteen, if you would just give those who do an opportunity to get out first and then follow them. Thanks. Thanks for coming. That was fun